0: You talk to them about the Lord, and then they begin to say, well, you know, I don't know if I believe there's a God. Or I'm not sure whether the Bible's the Word of God. I'm not even sure if there's a heaven or a hell. And you try to describe to them why they should believe, but you can't seem to go forward. The real problem is not a lack of apologetic because there's a plethora of evidence for any thinking person who is willing to look at it. The real problem is a moral problem. You see, because while they may, may have never read the Decalogue in Exodus 20 that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, God wrote it into their heart, into their consciences. We may not be able to post it on the walls in our schools, but God has posted it on every man's heart. And so all men have a knowledge and an awareness of what's right and what's wrong.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Debate in the Midst of the Feast, in John chapter 7, verses 14 through 36. We are in a study of the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves in chapter 7 today, following an account of Jesus and His brothers who did not yet believe he was the promised Messiah. We move into verse 14, where Jesus goes to celebrate the Feast of Booths. When Jesus walks into the temple and begins to teach the very people who have tried to kill him, the Pharisees marvel at his knowledge. Yet they refuse to believe and obey being conformed to the laws which they have created, which exceed what God has mandated. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins.
0: Take your Bibles, please, if you would, and turn to the 7th chapter of the Gospel of John. We've been working our way through this marvelous Gospel chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, and today we come to a very interesting passage of Scripture, and it reminds me of the state of our own nation. Recently, ABC ran a documentary entitled, The Search for Jesus, and in it they cataloged in their search clues for His childhood, his short adult life, the circumstances of his death, his teaching, and so forth. It was basically 89 minutes of sheer heresy, an attack on the Bible and the sinless Savior. Last year, a best-selling book on the New York Times list, The Da Vinci Code, came out that held to a blasphemous view concerning the Savior. Two months ago, on both the covers of Time and Newsweek, they also had stories on the life of Jesus Christ, Again, so much contrary to what the Scripture plainly says. And so why is it that there seems to be such a frontal attack in our day against historical orthodox Christianity? How is it that these so-called scholars can attack truth, and what is it that's motivating them to do it? What is it that's driving them? I suppose in one word you could summarize it under the issue of authority, If Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be, if He is God in human flesh, then everything He ever said is true. If Jesus Christ is God, then He is the only one who can deliver you from your sin and purchase you a place in heaven. He's the only one who can forgive your sin, who can write your name in the Lamb's book of life. If He is God, then He is Lord and you cannot have your immorality and your materialism and your pride and your hatred. You cannot live however you want to live. And so one of the best ways that people try to undermine who Christ is is to attack the sacredness of Scripture. Now I'm not here this morning to defend the accuracy of the Bible. I have messages that look at the historicity of Scripture, messages that deal that it is God's Word, is seen in fulfilled prophecy, is seen in its unity, is seen in its archaeological accuracy and in many other things that one can examine. But I am interested this morning in reminding you that the Bible is the litmus test. It's the plumb line by which the Christian, the true Christian, is to determine right and wrong. See, everything that you believe, everything I believe, is based on something. Maybe you thought it up. Maybe you read it in a book. Maybe a priest, rabbi, pastor told you. The question is not whether you believe it. The question is, is it true? Just because you believe it doesn't make it authoritative. And so there's a damning campaign in our day to discount the accuracy of Holy Scripture. And so people are going around asking, not what did Jesus say about himself, but who do you think Jesus is? And people in their own minds are molding Christ and bending him to whatever they want him to be. And how does the average guy on the street deal with the fellow who's got a PhD or a doctorate in theology or whatever it might be, How does he contend with those who attack historical beliefs, beliefs that he had always been taught is true? Well, this morning's passage is very relevant, and so I want you to pay close attention because it addresses some of these very issues. I want to begin in verse 14 where we left off last time. I won't read our text in its entirety, but let's begin reading in chapter 7 and verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel." On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment." every text is a context, and if you pretext it, you can distort its meaning. So let me remind you where we are in this chapter, because I know a number of you are walking into it for the first time. If you remember back in chapter 6, Jesus does a fantastic miracle, and he takes care of 5,000 households by feeding them. When the people see this incredible miracle, they want to make him king. But of course, when he stands up and he gives a lesson on the meaning of the miracle, they abandon him in droves. And that's rather interesting because when the chapter opens, they're enthusiastic, they love Jesus, he's healing the sick. But then when he feeds some 20,000 people, they, they, they want to make him king until he gives a message until he gives the bread of life discourse. And when they hear the message, they begin to grumble. They begin to argue among themselves. And ultimately, there's total defection with the exception of the 12. And so John gives us a very important footnote in the sixth chapter. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. An important note because that area marked a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. What's going to begin to happen is an ever-growing hatred for the Savior that will lead to His crucifixion. Now, as you read the seventh chapter, and you read it over and over and over again, it becomes apparent that there are three centers of opposition that the Lord deals with. And they fall under three different time divisions during a feast known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the seventh chapter and the eighth chapter falls around this very important historical feast that God had established in the Old Testament. Now, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles, but we're not far away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're six months away from the crucifixion. Probably it will take us six months to get to the 19th chapter as well. But in terms of the scheme of things, six months to the crucifixion from the events that are taking place in this chapter. But the Lord is sovereign, and no one can take Christ. Because he is working on a divine schedule. We saw that as a major theme in this chapter. That God is working under a divine timetable. He was born in the fullness of time, Paul wrote. He lived in the fullness of time. He died in the fullness of time. He rose in the fullness of time. He'll come again in the fullness of time. And so no one can take his life until God determines for it to be taken. Now, this seventh chapter opened with the words, and after these things. And we saw that when John uses that phrase, it's not always of a tight sequence of events, but just what comes next chronologically. In fact, you discover that there are seven months of time between the sixth and seventh chapters. If you open chapter six and verse four, you discover that the feeding of the 5,000 took place during the feast of the Passover. And so, seven months have transpired, and during these seven months, the synoptic Gospels tell us that Jesus was ministering in a number of small rural villages, but he spent the bulk of his time alone with his men. John writes, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He did that for seven months. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There was a contract on his life. There was an assassination plot against him. But seven months later, we read in verse 2, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booths, was at hand. Now don't forget, there were three major feasts that every Jewish male was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. A number of other feasts, but three they had to go to the city of Jerusalem once a year to celebrate. Passover, Pentecost, in the Feast of Booths, every male 20 years and up. Though this feast was the most popular of all the feasts. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, looked back at God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. If you remember, during 40 years, they lived in caves and tents and huts. And so God prescribed during this week, they would build all these little booths, these little lean-tos. And so people would come all over to celebrate this wonderful time. It was like our Thanksgiving. It's also called the feasts, a Feast of Ingathering in the Bible. So they not only looked back But they also celebrated God's faithfulness in the harvest for that year. And as we'll see next time, this feast, like all the Old Testament feasts, were prophetic in nature. And they looked ahead to what Jesus was going to do. Now, verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, we identified from other scripture, that Jesus had four brothers. They're named James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. They were unbelievers at this time. His brothers said, depart from here, go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. Christ grew up in a family with brothers and sisters. Your sisters are not named. We know he had at least two because it's in the plural, so at least seven kids in the family that he grew up in. He was born of a virgin, but after his virgin birth, Mary and Joseph had other children. And so his brothers want him to go up to the capital city to show himself as the Messiah because that's what he's claiming. Look at verse 4. They argue for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you are the Messiah, then get out of the sticks, get out of Hicksville, go up to the religious capital, go into Judea, there into Jerusalem, and prove yourself. Now, what motivated them to ask Christ to do that? A number of suggestions have been made. Some have said, well, they wanted him to do that so that he would be crowned Messiah and they could share in his power. I don't think so because Mark tells us they thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy, Mark tells us during this time. They loved him, they cared about him, but they thought he was crazy. Some say, no, he uh, was going up there because they wanted him to go, so he'd do the miracles and get crucified. No, that contradicts what Mark says. It's really not a mystery. The answer is given right in the text. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That word, if, is a conditional in the original. If you really do the miracles, now why would they ask that? Because they hadn't seen the miracles. As best we can tell from this gospel and from the synoptics, the only miracle that they had ever been present at was when Jesus turned the water into wine, and yet that was not a public miracle. Very private. His own mother, Mary, saw it, a few servants, and the disciples alone. So if you are really for real, if you really do these things, go and show your miraculous power. Go up to Jerusalem and do it. And I'm sure they would have thought, well, if the religious leaders embraced you, then we will too. But their challenge must be understood in light of verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. It's not until after the resurrection, Acts 1.14 indicates that they come to faith. And at least two of his brothers write two New Testament books. But he says in verse 6 in response, my time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. This is not the best time. This is not the favorable time for me to do what you want me to do. Why? Because he's operating on a divine timetable. He explains further in verse 7 why it's not the best time. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. It may be a good time for you, but it's not a good time for me. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. They didn't hate his brothers because his brothers at this point were in fellowship with the world. But Christ is the light of the world, and as the light of the world, he exposes sin. When you expose sin, sometimes people don't like you. That's why Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So he's saying it's not the right time. Verse 8, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Underscore that word fully. Now you read that verse, and at first glance you think, well, he's not going to Judea. You drop down to verse 10 and they say, well, he goes. Well, the liberals say a contradiction in the Bible. But we noted last time, if you remember, this word time. There are three words in the original for time. There's the word time, chronos, like for the hour. It's the 11 o'clock hour. Or there's the word kairos for time. That means an opportune time, a season of time. Jesus is saying, in essence, it's not the opportune time for me to go. Verse 9, and having said these things, he stayed In Galilee, Now, had he gone up with his family when they wanted him to go, had he gone undercover, so to speak, perhaps uh, there would have been a premature triumphal entry. Maybe the people would have said he's Messiah. They would have crowned him as king and Rome would have rebelled against it and he would have been crucified too soon. He's operating on a divine timetable. We're going to see when we come to the Passion Accounts that the very hour that Jesus died, was planned by God Almighty. So his brothers get up there. Where is he? They want him. He's the topic of discussion. Now, that's the events that lead up to the feast. This morning we come to the debate in the middle of the feast. And they debate over three issues. And by the way, if you read that time, Newsweek, or heard the ABC documentary, you will discover these same three issues that are covered in those different scenarios are covered in our text of Scripture this morning. So listen carefully. First, they debate over his doctrine. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now the feast lasted a day, and following that day there was a special holy convocation, what many refer to as the last day of the feast, the Sabbath that followed. But halfway through the feast... When the Lord senses the timing is right, this is the fullness of time, this is the right time, he goes up and he begins to teach. Verse 15, the Jews therefore were marveling, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now remember, people came from all over to this feast, and many are hearing the Lord for the first time, and they're absolutely ast- astonished. How is it that he has learned? How is it? Because he's never been educated, at least not in their schools. Now, the word learned here is a very interesting word in the original. It literally means learned letters. And the word is always put into the context of whatever science it is that it's dealing with. Here, they're saying Jesus is learned in the sacred letters of Holy Scriptures. How is it? He's never been to one of our approved schools. How is it that he knows so much of the Bible and can speak the way he does? When we come to the end of this chapter... We'll see some of the temple police, when they go to arrest Jesus, they're absolutely astonished when they hear him preach. And they will say, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. A number of months earlier in Galilee, as recorded in Matthew 7, we're told the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For his teaching is one having authority, not as their scribes. So how can this fellow, with no formal theological education... Be so bold in the scripture. By the way, his disciples had the same trait. Remember that in Acts 4? Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. By the way, this same kind of intellectual snobbery continues to our own day. Most Bible colleges and seminaries would not think of putting anyone on their faculty who did not have a learned, formal, academic degree. You can have a man who has studied hard under the tutelage of God the Holy Spirit, who's God-anointed, who knows the Bible, accurately handles it, and yet he would never be considered. Why? Because it's not a recognized education. Sometimes even Christian young people look at pastors and they say, you know, he went to so-and-so seminary. If I go to that seminary, I'll be a great preacher like him. What they don't understand is that what made Christ so great, his apostles so great, and any preacher of God today is the power of the Spirit upon their life. Verse 16 says, Jesus therefore answered them and said, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. Now, that is a very profound statement in the light of the way rabbis were educated in that day. From the rabbinical writings that have come down to us, along with some of the writings of Josephus, we know that the uh, rabbis would substantiate everything they teach, much like a lawyer defends a case in a court of law. A lawyer very often will look for a precedent case. and They'll say, well, you know, in Brown versus the Board of Education, it said so-and-so, and they'll use a precedent. Well, rabbis did that very thing. They would quote Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Hillel would quote Rabbi Gamaliel and Rabbi Gamaliel would quote Rabbi Gumballs or whoever it was. And there was always some precedent. But Jesus didn't operate on that basis. He didn't have another rabbi who discipled him. Now, he knew the basis they had operated on. He grew up going to temple. He grew up going to the synagogue there in Nazareth. But he doesn't quote them. Why? Because he said, my teaching is from God. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. I've got this straight from God the Father. I go straight to God himself. And that's where my message comes from. Now, please understand, that's a a powerful claim. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't study the word. He was as much human as he is God. So he had to study the scriptures. He had to pour over the word of God in under the guidance of the holy spirit but nonetheless he says my teaching is directly from heaven major question how do you know if that's true and how do you know if it's true how would they know if it's true well he tells us verse 17 if any man is willing to do his will he shall know the teaching whether it is of god or whether i speak for myself Jesus is saying that any person can know whether or not my teaching is directly from God if he's willing to do the Father's will. That is a powerful statement. See, there are some people who never come to know the truth because they don't really want to do the truth. Because by nature, they are unrepentant and stubborn in heart. That's why Jesus said two times over, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. There has to be a willingness to do the will of God in order to understand the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why sometimes, say you talk to someone who's in an immoral relationship. You talk to them about the Lord, and then they begin to say, well, you know, I don't know if I believe there's a God. Or I'm not sure whether the Bible's the Word of God. I'm not even sure if there's a heaven or a hell. And you... Try to describe to them why they should believe, but you can't seem to go forward. The real problem is not a lack of apologetic, because there's a plethora of evidence for any thinking person who is willing to look at it. The real problem is a moral problem. You see, because while they may, may have never read the Decalogue in Exodus 20 that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. God wrote it into their heart, into their consciences. We may not be able to post it on the walls in our schools, but God has posted it on every man's heart. And so all men have a knowledge and an awareness of what's right and what's wrong. They can lose that knowledge and awareness by rebelling against God, but nonetheless they have it. And so some people, because they're living in open rebellion against God, unwilling to do the will of God, They really can't discern whether the teachings of Christ are for real. Now, this is a topic that is being introduced here, and it's going to unfold in this gospel. The principle that light responded to brings more light. And so he says, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I am. Speak for myself. If you are willing to respond to the light you have, willing to do the will of the Father that is written into your heart, then you will know. But if you will not do what God has already shown you, your eyes will never be opened. Now, understand here, Jesus is not saying that you have to come to a certain level of moral achievement before you can become a believer. When we come to the eighth chapter, he will say a man who's in sin is a slave to sin. But there has to be a willingness to do the will of God if God is ever going to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel where you believe and are saved. And many of you here this morning have taken that challenge. You said, God, I am willing to know. I want to know. I am willing to know. And because of your openness of heart, God opened your eyes and he showed you the gospel and the truth of his son. And he took the self righteous and he caused them by his grace to see the reality of Christ's teaching. And they fled to him for forgiveness. He took the drunk. He sobered him. He took the gay person and made him straight. He took the immoral person and made them pure. He has a way of changing lives if you are willing to do the Father's will. Now look at verse 18. Notice what he says. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Now, unfortunately, some people, especially the religious leaders at hand, were only interested in their own glory. Today, we have people all bound up in their own ego, their own ideas, their own plan. And that's why he's mentioning it in this context, because that's the problem with these leaders. But he, who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, speaking of himself, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. If Jesus were out just to build his own name and to promote his own glory, he would have taken his brother's offers. He would have went up to Jerusalem, done a plethora of miracles. They would have all crowned him as king and he would have basked in his own glory. But he didn't come to simply glorify himself, but to do the father's will and to glorify him. And so this one who's the embodiment of truth says he seeks not his glory, but the father's glory. Now look at the question he asked to reveal where they are at in verse 19. Interesting question. Did not Moses give you the law? Indeed he did. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now God, through Moses, had given the nation of Israel the scriptures, the Pentateuch, and ultimately the entire Old Testament. Paul notes this in Romans 3, that they were the custodians of the word of God. But Jesus makes a very important point that there's a difference between receiving the law and obeying the law. Moses gave them the law. The problem was they weren't keeping the law. Far from keeping the law, they wanted to put Christ to death. Now Moses wrote, thou shall not murder. But they want to take the innocent Son of God and to put Him to death. Because they're lawbreakers. It goes back to what we read in verse 17. If any man is willing to do the will of the Father. they were unwilling. And he's illustrating their unwillingness. Look at verse 20. Their response. The multitude answered, you've got a demon. Who seeks to kill you? They deny that they are plotting to put Him to
1: death. This is what, by the way, what most people do when they're caught in sin. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 022. Don't forget that if you have missed any part of our series, you can download the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes and Google Play store. Or you can listen online at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.